Way back in Genesis chapter 15, the Lord made a promise to Abraham. The Lord cut a covenant with Abraham, binding himself to the fulfillment of the promise that he swore to Abraham. And he bound himself to this promise by, promise, by swearing on the highest possible surety that exists himself. We read it in Genesis 15, starting in verse 18. The Lord covenant this, covenanted with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, and the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. You see, God promised to Abraham that there would come a day when Abraham's numerous descendants would be given this great and fertile land as their possession, their gift from the Lord God himself. But before that would happen, before that could happen, the descendants of Abraham, the Israelites, found themselves afflicted by the Egyptians with a harsh enslavement. Enslavement of such merciless cruelty that the spirit of the Israelites was broken and weighted down by their seemingly hopeless plight. That is, until God rose up to act on their behalf. And in the most stunning and powerful and miraculous fashion, God saved Israel. He delivered Israel from the iron grip of the most powerful nation on the planet at that time, Egypt. And the descendants of Abraham witnessed firsthand the power of God as he sent plague upon plague in Egypt, strike upon strike against Egypt. They saw firsthand the Nile River turn to blood. They saw firsthand the overrunning of Egypt with frogs and with gnats and with locusts and with flies. They saw firsthand the Lord's sending of plagues upon the Egyptian livestock where all the animals of the Egyptians were killed, but the animals belonging to the Israelites were spared. They saw firsthand the Egyptians struck with painful boils and sores. They saw firsthand the heavy hail that the Lord sent upon the nation that struck down absolutely everything. Man, house, livestock, trees. But in the land of Goshen, where the Israelites lived, there was no hail. Everything survived. They witnessed firsthand the Lord blocking out, blotting out the sun itself so that for three days a thick darkness that could literally, the text tells us, literally be felt across the land halted all industry, halted all visitation, and everybody in Egypt sat in their place for three full days because it was so dark. But in Goshen, where the Israelites were, there was light. And finally, the Lord threatened the most devastating of all plagues. We read it in Exodus 11, chapter, four, uh, chapter 11, verses 4 to 6, where the Lord told this to Moses, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt as there has never been, nor ever will be again. And after the Lord struck down the firstborn throughout the nation of Egypt, Pharaoh commanded the Israelites to get out of the land. And as they were leaving, as they were fleeing, Pharaoh quickly changed his mind, however, and sent out his formidable army to reclaim his slaves, only to be met by the power and the protection of God over Israel firsthand as the Lord protected Israel by a pillar of cloud in the day and a pillar of fire at night, pillars that the Egyptian army could not penetrate. And then, and then the Lord used Moses to part the Red Sea. Imagine seeing this. 
with your own eyes as Moses stands and goes like this and an entire sea parts. The Israelites saw it with their own eyes. They saw the water wall up on two sides and they walked through that path of dry land that the Lord had created for them. And when they had crossed, the Lord lifted the pillar of cloud and lifted the pillar of fire so that the Egyptians might rush into that sea, through that sea, on that dry land where they would meet with the judgment of the Lord as he closed that very same sea in over them. With one motion of the hand, the Lord decimated and destroyed the most advanced, the most well-armed, the most well-trained and greatly feared army on the planet for the sake of the Israelites who never, in all of this, ever needed to hoist a sword or a shield in defense. Not even once. And yet, in the midst of all that they had witnessed firsthand with their very own eyes, in the midst of all of this phenomenal and staggeringly wonderful delivering power worked for them by the Lord himself, they still rebelled against the Lord in the wilderness. They could not take the fact that the Lord wasn't supplying them with what they wanted when they wanted it. See, the Lord didn't operate on their timetable, on their schedule, according to what they wanted whenever they wanted it, nor does He do so for us. He operates on His own schedule, blessing and delivering on His own schedule. And so this land that the Lord had promised to them actually became an exceedingly difficult thing to lay hold of and to enter because the people refused to trust God. And because they refused to trust God, an entire generation of Israelites had to die in the wilderness before they can take hold of the promise of God. The kingdom of Israel suffered great violence at the hands of those rebellious discontents those grumbling and unsatisfiable people who even though seeing firsthand, seeing with their very own eyes in the clearest and most direct manner the works of God's power in Egypt, the works of God's power during their escape from Egypt, and even more, the works of God's power while they traveled in the wilderness. You remember, right? God miraculously provided for them all the time. He provided for them food in the form of manna from heaven. Like how often do you see food just fall from the sky? He provided for them in the form of hydration from a rock. Any of you, anybody here ever tried to squeeze a rock to get water out of it? When it came, and, and even, even after all of this, when it came time to go and scout out the promised land that God had promised to them and that God had revealed he had the power to lead them into, they sent 12 scouts to check out the land. And when the 12 came back, 10, count them, 10 returned with a report that revealed their distrust of God. They weren't satisfied with all that the Lord had shown them. They weren't satisfied with all that the Lord had done for them. And their words revealed that they would rather have gone back to Egypt to re-enter enslavement they would rather have continued on in the wilderness than to take hold of everything God had offered them and promised to them. The kingdom suffered violence at the hands of such a generation. And among the scouts, actually, only among this entire generation, only Joshua and Caleb possessed the courage, the spirit, the strong-mindedness, and the faith to take God at his word. And they called on the people to advance, to lay hold of what God has set before you. It's yours. The Lord has promised it. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. But they refused. The generation who had witnessed God's work refused. They were too cowardly, too implacable, too unappeasable, too unsatisfiable, too untrusting to take God at his word, to heed God's good command, and to press forward in obedient faith. You see, the scenario didn't line up the way they wanted it to, so they took their ball home and quit playing. 
They were the sort of generation that no matter what God did to provide for them, no matter what God did to inspire trust in them, no matter what God did to show them His delivering power, His love, His care, they simply spit at it like children and cried out, I don't like this game. I don't want to play. I am out of here. And because this generation was the one who witnessed firsthand with their very own eyes the wonders of God, because their exposure to God's delivering power was so crystal clear, the wrath of God came upon them in the most furious and terrible measure, in that the Lord decreed that, according to Deuteronomy 1, not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers. Except Caleb, Joshua, and the little ones, meaning the children who on this day have no knowledge of good or evil, everyone else will die. And as we come to our text this morning, once again we encounter a generation in Israel repeating the same mistakes as the generation that died in the wilderness. The people of Chorazin, the people of Bethsaida, the people of Capernaum were in a similar boat to that Exodus generation in that they too witnessed firsthand by direct sight the miraculous power of Jesus Christ. They had seen firsthand with their very own eyes, look at the text, a multitude of mighty works wrought by Christ. They experienced the return of healed, cleansed, and restored family members because Jesus had healed and cleansed and restored them himself. And yet, like the Exodus generation, these crowds, generally speaking, also refused to repent and trust in God. They were, as Jesus declared, similar to bratty, spoiled, tantrum-throwing, unsatisfiable children. And should they continue in their unrepentance, they too would experience the wrath and the anger of the Lord dispensed upon them as well. A lesson, a truth, that each and every one of us here this morning would do well to heed ourselves. Unless you repent of your sins, unless you believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who saves all who turn to him in faith from their, from their, the penalty, the just and deserved penalty of God's eternal wrath against the sins that you've committed against him, unless you take Jesus up on his offer of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone in him, you too will, like these generations of stubborn rebels, stubborn rebels against the Lord, meet with his furious his unrelenting and his devastating wrath. And in light of the fact that the gospel has been continually and clearly preached by the leadership of this church, for you to hear and to reject the clear call of Jesus will result in a judgment that is more, will be more tolerable and bearable for that wicked city, Sodom, than it will be for you. So anyone here this morning who has not truly turned to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, anyone watching online who has not truly turned to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, this whole text this morning constitutes a grave warning to you, as it did to its original audience. And the warning begins in verse 12. Take a look at it. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. Now, I don't know what translations you all have here this morning, but depending on your translation, you will see that verse 12 is either translated in a positive formula, as in, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been going forward in strength or forcefully advancing. That's a positive way of phrasing it. Or as the ESV translates it, in the negative and passive, as in, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. So in one, it's moving, pressing forward forcefully. In the other, it's suffering violence. 
Both are contextually appropriate. Both are true statements. And I assume that Jesus is intending to convey both ideas in this text. So if it means, or the idea that the kingdom of heaven is forcefully advancing communicates this idea. That the kingdom of heaven, through the preaching ministries of both John and Jesus, had been pressing forward in the midst of towering obstacles in the midst of immense opposition, and those who would enter the kingdom of heaven by grace through faith in the king must do so with great effort as they wade through, as they press through, as they fight against the barriers and the hurdles and the stumbling blocks that are set in the path of those walking towards that kingdom by the world, by their flesh, and by Satan himself. Those who would enter the kingdom by grace through faith in Christ, cannot do so with any sort of half-hearted conviction. It takes strength. It takes courage. It takes zeal. It takes conviction. As people enter the kingdom by kneeling to the king, they must do so in spite of the world's antagonism, in spite of everything the world will do to keep you from entering that kingdom. And when you do, you must do so as one who has counted the cost. The cost being the denial of self, the taking up of your cross, the following of Jesus Christ, the entering through the narrow gate and the walking of the narrow path. You must make war against all that would keep you and others from entering and forcefully taking hold of the kingdom. And those who do so take hold of it, they will. As the kingdom continues to press forward, Jesus will later tell us that not even the gates of hell will be able to prevail against its advance. And that's the sense meant by going forward here in strength. If you're using the ESV, you will see that it's phrased in the passive, as in, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. The idea presented here is that the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. Along with the messenger, along with its messengers, men like John and Jesus and the apostles and the rest, they do and they will suffer violence as the world rises up in opposition to the gospel of the kingdom and responds to it in violent fashion. The kingdom suffers violence as the wicked, unrepentant rebels against the Lord attack both the message and the messengers. And they will either seek to eliminate the message altogether or suppress it by subverting it, shaping it, changing it to fit the mold and the fit according to accord with the image or to line up with the views and the idols that the culture deems appropriate. The kingdom suffers violence as it is suppressed by governments, as it is suppressed by idolatrous national religions. The kingdom suffers violence as the people of Christ are killed and martyred and kidnapped and beaten for their faith in Jesus all over the world. The kingdom suffers violence as numerous and varied false and heretical branches of religion are founded by charismatic personalities. I don't mean that in the, you know, the... the Holy Spirit type sense. I mean like people who can gather a crowd to them. As heretical branches of religion are founded by these charismatic personalities that depart from the historic Christian faith and yet still call themselves Christian. Leading hundreds, leading thousands, leading hundreds of thousands, leading millions away from true biblical Christianity in favor of some idolatrous deception. The kingdom suffers violence as the unrepentant populate seats in the visible church, tares among wheats, goats among sheep, who refusing to repent instead sow division, discord, and dissension among believers. The kingdom suffers violence as these goats call for the reinterpretation of historic biblical truths, as they call for the redefining of biblical definitions, as they call for the church to be less strict in its focus on doctrine and theology. This is just a small sampling of the numerous ways the kingdom suffers violence. Now, in context, Jesus speaks of the kingdom suffering violence from the days of John the Baptist until now. You see that? From the days of John the Baptist until now. Meaning, since the start of John's preaching ministry until this moment in Matthew's gospel, which was a span of about 18 months, in that time, the preaching of John, the kingdom of heaven, 
uh, to the kingdom of heaven, both pressed forward forcefully in the sense that people heard it and responded to John's call for repentance and baptism at the Jordan, and it suffered violence from those religious leaders who insulted it, who maligned both John and Jesus. The kingdom suffered violence from those Jews in the crowd who were eager to see the physical earthly kingdom restored to Israel, who labored for it, who agitated for it to take place without doing the one thing that God said is necessary for its arrival, repentance. The kingdom of heaven suffered violence because they wanted it on their own terms, not on the Lord's, and so refused to repent, and they remained in rebellion, but all the while still believing themselves to be the children of the Lord. Listen, without faith in Christ, without repentance from sin, we are not saved. Jesus said in Mark 1.15, repent and believe the gospel. If we do not repent and truly believe the gospel, we are not children of God, but we are instead, we remain instead the children of the devil, as Jesus said in John 8. Now, if one wants proof that the kingdom is truly at hand, Jesus said next in verses 13 to 14, all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. You see, John marks the end of an era and the beginning of another era. All the prophets of the Old Testament prophesied about events that would come in the future, about the times of John and the times of Jesus. John, however, when he prophesied, he prophesied about the immediate present. John literally pointed out with his finger the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises of the coming Savior. There he is! See, John is a hinge figure. He's the last prophet of the old age. He's the first martyr of the new age. He represents the pinnacle and the end of the old covenant, and he points to the one who inaugurates the new covenant. And if you are willing to accept it, said Jesus to this crowds, John is the Elijah who is to come. He is the one who calls you to repentance. He is the one who points you to the fulfillment of the promises you've been expecting. He is the one who says, here he is. And he who has ears... To hear, let him hear. However, even though John is the one prophesied by Scripture, and even though Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world, the people of Israel simply would not repent and would not believe. And so Jesus makes a rather startling comparison about and rather startling denunciations of these unrepentant, rebellious, and stiff-necked crowds. These are the strongest and most direct words of Jesus that he has used to rebuke any group up to this point in this gospel. And as he looks out at the crowds, crowds made up of both regular, everyday people who reject the kingdom and religious leaders who went even further than simple denunciations, you remember, right, already the religious leaders have said that Jesus, has casts, Jesus casts out demons by the prince of demons. Already the religious leaders have said that Jesus can do these things because he is in partnership with the devil. To such a generation of people, Jesus looks out and he says these words in verse 16 and 17. Look at them. To what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Now, on the one hand, Jesus will commend those who follow him to become like children, right? You will see later in Mar Matthew's gospel, Jesus said this in chapter 18, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You see, to be a child, to be childlike is to be humble, to totally trust in God and in Christ, to be secure in Christ, to know that Christ has got this and to have simple faith and trust in Him. That's a quality that is commended by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's one thing to be like a child in this sense. It's another to be childish. And that's what Jesus is rebuking here, this childishness of the generation. Childishness is this relentless fault-finding quality. 
this consistently dissatisfied disposition. You see, if you have children, you know that children tend to be hard to satisfy because they want everything their way right away. And if they don't get what they want, they don't get things exactly what they want, when they want it, they throw tantrums and they stamp their feet and they yell and they scream. I mean, how many of us walking through a Walmart or walking through a toy store of some kind where there's a toy section have heard kids screaming because they want something right now? This is the childish. We've all seen children at play as well, right? Fighting about the rules by which to play the game. They all want the game played by their rules, right? No, don't do that. Do this. I don't want to do it that way. I want to do it this way. Well, fine then. I'm just not playing anymore. I heard this very thing last night as I was trying to go to bed. As my children were playing Connect Four. Fine, I'm not playing anymore. And they played Guess Who? That's not right. I don't want to play it this way. I didn't get up. I wanted to get some sleep. But I heard it. So Jesus here compares this generation, the generation before him, to bratty, misbehaving children who refuse to play because the rules aren't set by them. Like children in the marketplaces competing with each other about the songs that they should play. One group wants to play the flute. Let's play songs of joy. But no one dances because the other group says, I don't want to play that way. I want to sing dirges. But then nobody mourns because nobody's playing the game according to the other person's rules. And so Jesus looked at the crowds and told them, you are all just so childish. You are like these unsatisfiable children who throw hissy fits when the game isn't played by your rules. And if you think about it, the problem runs even deeper. We can't even agree on the rules. And so, in your childishness, the representatives, the spokesmen, the messengers of God who declare to you the gospel of the kingdom, instead of being heard, where the focus of your complaints, where the focus of your insults, where the focus of your slanders, regardless of whether they played the flute for you or sang a dirge for you, you are like children who cannot be satisfied. You see, the crowds did not dance when the flute was played in the life and call of our Lord Jesus Christ. The crowds did not mourn when the dirge was sung in the call and ministry of John the Baptist. Jesus said, you're just too childish to respond. Think about it. Both John and Jesus proclaimed the same message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John, at the outset of his ministry, the first thing he said is, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, in Matthew 3, 2. And after Je coming out of the tests in the wilderness, Jesus began his preaching ministry, and it was the same thing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And even though both preached the same message, even though both of them had lifestyles that were polar opposites to one another, this childish generation found faults in both of them, slandered both of them, and eventually witnessed the death of both of them. The crowds treated both Jesus and John the same as these children in the marketplaces who refused to respond to songs of joy or songs of mourning. Look in verse 18. As we see there, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. We've read about John over the last little while, right? He came living a very different sort of life than the everyman. He separated himself from society. He gave up and avoided the luxuries and the comforts that everyday people tend to enjoy. He wore odd and weird clothing. He limited his diet to simple foods that were available only by much effort in the wilderness. I mean, to go around trying to catch locusts, that's difficult. It makes you hungry while you're trying to get the food you want to eat. If you try, has, have any of you tried to get honey before? No. You know why? <laughs> Bees! Bees! It takes a lot of effort. 
And not only that, John's preaching tended to be harsh and fiery and clear and very judgmental. And John lived in the wilderness, which in the Old Testament tended to be the place of meeting between God and his prophets. And John's clothing was similar to Elijah's, one of Israel's great prophets. John came speaking and preaching the word of God in the same manner that the Old Testament prophets had done for the first time in over 400 years. And what did the crowds and the generations say about John? They said the same thing that they had said about every prophet before John. This man has a demon, or in other words, this man is a fanatic. This man is deranged. This man is out of his mind. He's too harsh. He's too unsocial. He's too severe. He's too disconnected from the average person. He is too clear in his demands for self-denial and repentance. We hate him. So, it would go without saying then, right? That if the people responded to this way to John, a man of strictness, harshness, and separation, that they would therefore respond positively to one who came preaching the message but lived a quite, quite a different sort of life, right? You would kind of expect that to be the case, maybe? But that's not the case. That's not what happened at all. Look what Jesus said next in verse 9. Jesus said, The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You see, Jesus came unlike John. Unlike John, Jesus lived among the people and he walked with the people. Unlike John, Jesus went to where the people were. See, John was out in the wilderness. The people had to travel to him. Jesus went to where the people were. Jesus ate and he drank in people's homes. He ate at the homes of the Pharisees. He ate in the homes of tax collectors like Matthew. Jesus attended wedding feasts. Jesus went to his friend Lazarus's home. Whether you were a strict law keeper like the Pharisees or sinners living disobedient lives, Jesus shared the table with all of them. Jesus ate and drank with them in the normal societal fashion. Jesus did all the things that the people criticized John for not doing and how did they respond to Jesus? They criticized him for it as well. This is childishness. The childish crowds found fault with Jesus because they were so hard to please. They were as disrespectful and as unruly as wayward children. Whatever the lifestyle that the true messenger of God chose to live, they found fault with it. Whereas John didn't eat and drink and they criticized him for it, Jesus ate and drank and they criticized him for it. Whether John preached in harsh, demanding, and judgmental tones, they criticized him for it. While Jesus came preaching graciously and patiently untying knots, theological knots for the people, and he was also criticized. Whereas John stayed away from the people and separated himself, he was criticized. And Jesus in people's homes, eating and drinking and speaking, was also criticized. Regardless of how committed they are to the Lord and the proclamation of his truth, there will always be those who criticize the messengers of the Lord and denounce them in their childishness. There will always be those who salivate at the chance and the opportunity to denounce and to disparage and to run down those who relay God's word because they don't do everything the way they like. J.C. Ryle, for example, as you know, one of my favorites, in his own day contended that the same was still true of the teachers committed to preaching, teaching, and discipling people in God's word in his own day. And he wrote this, quote, It is a mournful fact that there are always thousands of professing Christians just as unreasonable as these Jews. They are, un they are equally as perverse and equally hard to please. Whatever we teach and preach, they find fault. Whatever be our manner of life, they are dissatisfied. Do we tell them of salvation by grace and justification by faith? At once they cry out against our doctrine as antinomian. Do we tell them of the holiness with which God, the gospel requires? At once they exclaim, we're too strict and precise and too righteous. 
Are we cheerful? They accuse us of levity. Are we grave? They call us gloomy and sour. Do we keep away from balls and horse races and plays? They denounce us as puritanical, as exclusive and narrow-minded. Do we go and eat and drink and dress like other people and attend to our worldly callings and go into society? They sneeringly insinuate that they see no difference between us and those who make no profession at all and that we are not better than other men. What is all this but the conduct of the Jews over again? We have piped unto you and you have not danced. We have mourned unto you and you have not lamented. J.C. Ryle spoke these words as a man who knew the hearts of men well. And the late R.C. Sproul, a man who who was himself committed to the preaching of God's word, also wrote of his experiences as one unable to satisfy the expectations of the people. He spoke of his national conference and he said this, quote, I see this kind of thing sometimes following the Ligonier National Conference. We always ask people to fill out sheets to evaluate the conference and tell us what they liked and did not like. The staff reads every one of them. They take these comments very seriously and try to implement requested changes as they are planning the next conference. But sometimes... They will end up with a stack of evaluation forms saying there was too much music and another stack saying there was not enough music. How can we possibly fix this kind of disagreement? It cannot be done. It is impossible to completely satisfy every person who comes to a conference. We can go even further and say it's simply impossible to satisfy every person at all. If the two luminaries that are John and Jesus couldn't do it, then who can? And so Jesus makes it clear, both the approach of John with his strict life and stern preaching, as well as the approach of Jesus with his graciousness and time spent and kind invitations of people to, the, to believe the good news, would ultimately, ultimately bear fruit that vindicates them both. John and Jesus were insulted by the crowds, but both were used by God for his good will and purpose. And look at the world now. The gospel has spread throughout the world, and the Lord is using all types of personalities to bring the good news to the peoples. Right living before God, obedience to God, obedience to the gospel of Christ preached will be vindicated and justified by her fruits. The fruits of salvation the fruits of people turning from sin and repentance to Christ in faith. But for the Israelites at this time, for the ones to whom Jesus spoke on this day, their rejection of the gospel brought to them by both John and Jesus has some grave consequences. It also has grave consequences for those of us who hear it and reject it today as well. And what are these consequences? Jesus tells us next in verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. The word denounce here means to harshly criticize, to reprimand, and even to demean. And Jesus spoke like this to this particular people, those who had witnessed firsthand his mighty works, and yet in their wickedness rejected the gospel in the same way the wilderness generation did. Jesus is the one who will graciously call sinners to salvation and also at the same time insist on their repentance. And Jesus will, when the time calls for it, threaten and warn of the judgments that await the unrepentant should they continue in their state of unrepentance. There are three cities spoken of here in this text as the places where, look at it, most, you see it, most of the mighty works of Jesus had been done. So many of these works of Christ remain unrecorded. We don't have any record of miracles in the New Testament done in Chorazin. This generation, however, these cities witnessed the mighty works of Jesus. They witnessed works of Christ that we have no knowledge of. And yet they did not repent. Oh, how great... And how terrible is the guilt of all who witness such clear manifestations of Christ's identity. 
How great and how terrible is the guilt of all who sit regularly under the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God. Oh, how great is the guilt of all who hear the Word of God over and over and over again and yet remain unrepentant. The weight of your guilt before God is both dreadful and abominable. You must repent. You must turn to Christ and change. And repentance is that change whereby you abandon the flesh. You turn from your sin and you turn to Christ. And this leads to a new disposition. One where hatred of sin and your regret for the sins that you do commit are increase. And along with it, your love for and your desire to obey Christ increases. Your life might be to you, O unrepentant one, one where you believe yourself to be respectable, where you believe yourself to be fairly well behaved. However, if this morning you hear and you reject the gospel, the words of Christ to you are that it will be more intolerable for you on the day of judgment than for Sodom. You. Do not be hard-hearted towards the gospel. Hear the call of Christ. Wake up! Verse 21. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Now when you hear that word, woe, this is a pronouncement of judgment. Woe. It means, oh, how greatly you will suffer if you do not repent. Woe. Wake up. This generation of Jews had witnessed such mighty works. Works of such a quality and such a magnitude that if they had been performed in Tyre and in Sidon, two cities that were long ago, that were long known for their proud, arrogant hostility towards the Lord, cities that were eventually conquered and destroyed by Alexander the Great, cities that had been long gone, cities that are long gone, Had these cities been given the same opportunities that you, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum have been given, if they had been blessed with the sights that you have seen, even they would have repented. Had they heard the good news that you hear, had they witnessed what you've witnessed, Chorazin and Bethsaida, they would have done what you refuse to do, which is repent. These sinners you so despise would, unlike you, have responded positively to the works of God in their midst. In the same way that Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah, not only would Tyre and Sidon have repented, but look, they would have done so in sackcloth and in ashes. They would have done so in monumental grief over the sinfulness of their deeds. And they would have done so with deep and with heartfelt repentance. Jesus didn't end there, but he continued this shocking statement, with this shocking statement to Jews who assumed that their righteous status before God came simply because they were Jews. They assumed that they were exempt from the judgment of God because they were Jews. But Jesus declared this, your judgment... O crowds before me, will be both hotter and more unbearable than that of Tyre and Sidon. And he keeps going. That's what he says in verse 22. I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. The cities who had witnessed the clear works of the Lord will find the judgment of God more severe than those who weren't witness to such clarity. And Capernaum as well a city where numerous mighty works are recorded in the Gospels, it's from Capernaum that we see the centurion's servant healed. It's in Capernaum that we see Christ healing Peter's mother-in-law of her life-threatening fever. It's in Capernaum that Jesus heals numerous demon-possessed peoples and heals people of their sicknesses. And to the city of Capernaum, Jesus said this in verse 23, look at it. And you, Capernaum, Will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. 
Now, to a Jewish person hearing these words from the lips of Jesus, this would have been a most outlandish and unbelievable statement. To say that we Jews would have it worse than Sodom. This is an outrageous claim, Jesus. But the same can be said of us. Those who reject Christ and yet somehow think or cling to your goodness. Who somehow cling to this idea that if you're a good person at heart, that you cling to this idea that if there is a God and I have to stand before him, I can just say, I was, I was good. I was a good person. I helped my landlady take out her garbage and I, I gave one-third of one percent of my money to charity. If you do not turn to Christ, know this, your goodness will not save you. Your goodness cannot save you. You do not have a good heart. You have a wicked heart that needs renovation and reformation by the Holy Spirit. And every minute that you refuse to repent, these words of woe from Christ apply to you. Your eternal destiny hangs in the balance. And every minute, every second you don't repent brings you a second or a minute closer to the eternal wrath of God. And Jesus quotes in verse 23, Isaiah 14. And in Isaiah 14, he speaks to the pride of Babylon, where we read this. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Now you are, but you are brought down to Sheol, the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will, shh, will stare at you and ponder over you. Jesus here compares the pride of Capernaum with that of the Babylonians during the height of their power. You see, Babylon never thought that their empire would fall. Babylon boasted that they would continue to rise. They would continue to get more powerful. That they would ascend into the heavens. But eventually, the God who sits over all nations, who lifts up kings at will and who deposes them according to his good pleasure, displaced Babylon and brought this once proud nation to the dust, to the lowest depths of the grave and the warning to Capernaum and the warning to you if you are unrepentant is this do not fool yourself do not deceive yourself you are in the same boat as Babylon if your pride is puffing you up unless you repent you will face the same end you will be brought down to Hades Jesus said which is the place of torment reserved for the spirits of all those who die apart from faith in Christ Capernaum, if even that wicked city of Sodom had witnessed and heard what you have heard, if they had been blessed to see and hear what you hear. You see, Sodom was a city to which the word of God never came. No miracles were performed there. No warnings or calls to repentance proclaimed there. Had there been, even that city would still be standing to this day, said Jesus. Those people you consider so wicked, they would have repented had Christ come to them and did all that he is doing in your midst. And so unless you repent, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, and you, if you keep rejecting the message brought to you by Jesus, and John, the message, the gospel of the kingdom, this will issue in a greater and more severe punishment. It will issue in the wrath of God poured out upon you in ways worse than even the greatest sins of the worst city in the Old Testament era. All you childish, unappeasable, fault-finding people, Unless you truly repent and believe the gospel, your eternity will be one of the most horrendous quality as the Lord himself pours out wrath upon you forever. You, 
here this morning, you personally sitting in the seats here this morning, you listening online this morning, hear the words of this text. Are you one that can be compared to the children sitting in the marketplaces who take their ball and go home when they don't hear what they want to hear? Who reject the gospel of our Lord because it doesn't suit how you want to live your life or what you want to believe about the world? You need to know that you live in a period of bounty. God's word is everywhere. You can purchase Bibles at Walmart. You most likely have a few Bibles kicking around your house. YouTube has thousands of clear gospel messages. Sermon Audio has churches all over the world, faithful churches all over the world, preaching God's word. It's all at your fingertips. And woe to all who in this blessed feast of God's word that we are experiencing in our day, a time when God's word is clearly proclaimed by a number of faithful preachers, still like peevish children reject the gospel. Woe to you. Are you one who must hear the message of the gospel and respond to it in faith and repentance this morning? Then do so. Repent. Turn from your sin. Turn to Jesus who lived a perfect sinless life, who died on the cross and took to himself, upon himself, the penalties for the sins of all who believe in him, who rose from the dead after three days, confirming the acceptability of his sacrifice in the eyes of the Father, who now sits at the right hand of God the Father as our intercessor and our advocate right now that you have attended here this morning and heard the word of God opened up and proclaimed to you, that you have heard the call of God to repent and believe the gospel, for you to believe or for you to leave this place without calling out to Christ in faith, without turning from your sin and believing in your heart that Jesus is Lord and Jesus is Savior, should this be your last opportunity to do so, which it might very well be, you might not be alive to, to attend next week. Should this be your last opportunity to do so, and you do not, you will regret it forever. Those with ears to hear, let them hear. And may God be honored and glorified in all things. Father, I pray right now for your Holy Spirit to be working in all of our hearts. to be calling those who have not repented to repentance and faith, to be calling those who have not believed to believe. I pray that you would be working in the hearts of those who have come to you half-heartedly, that you would bring them to the place where they truly repent and believe wholeheartedly. I pray for those who may have taken some time off from true faithfulness to you over the last year or so. And I pray that you would inspire them to return to you with full heart, full devotion. I pray that we would be a people marked by repentance, marked by belief, marked by childlike faith, not childish dissatisfaction. We pray all of this in the name of our precious, wonderful, holy, exalted, and magnified Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.